Is your heart too hard to cry? And perhaps this morning, maybe God wants to soften your heart. But you cry so often that you just like you, you, you're just full of despair. And perhaps this morning, maybe God wants to uh, have you trust in him, in his goodness, so that you can hope again. It was July 2000. Uh, Lynn and I were just 20. We had just been married for over a year. And we were driving back from Minneapolis to, to Detroit. Uh, I was a part of a planning committee, and we had planned and executed a successful youth conference for about uh, 2,000 youth, and just celebrating that, and just coming off the high of that. And so it was a 12-hour drive from Minneapolis to Detroit, and we were about nine hours of the way through. And I just remember the details so clearly because um, I had broke my foot that week, and so uh, just everything just seemed to be so like heightened because of that. And so uh, nothing about my life up until that point uh, prepared me for what was going to happen at a gas station on the side of the road that morning. So we made our way to the gas station, and we filled up our tank, and we ran into some conference attendees who uh, eventually we found out they were from uh, Indiana. And um, the only reason why I recognized them were because they were wearing the conference T-shirts that I had designed. And so we went up to them, and we kind of made our acquaintances, and they shared a bit of kind of their excitement over the conference and just amazing things that we saw happen. And then they dropped a bomb. It was literally, it was literally a bomb. Like even just as I'm getting ready to share the story, I can still feel just the chills. And so they asked me, hey, did you hear about the accident this morning? I said, no, I, no, what accident? So well, this morning, a youth group, a uh, 15-passenger van rolled over, and they were from Detroit. And I just remember at that moment, like this had never happened to me before, but my heart was just pounding in my chest. I said, how bad was the accident? I said, two people passed away. I started thinking, oh, was it my church? Like, there's only two churches from Detroit that went to the conference. I started asking myself, oh, these kids, like if it's my church, these kids, I'd spent eight years mentoring. My younger brother was on one of those 15-passenger vans. And so in that moment, I was just literally shaking. I grabbed Linda's hand. Uh, it was such a weird scene for us because we're in a gas station. So I grabbed her hand. I'm fumbling trying to find my cell phone, and I had the, a Nokia cell phone that was out of battery. Um, and uh, so I dug up some change, and I quickly made a phone call back to... Um, so uh, Chuck was my friend who was one of the drivers, and his wife, Amanda. And I called their home, um, uh, and uh, Susan, their cousin, picked up. And she said, yes, it was our church. And uh, Amanda died. And my mind just couldn't, like, comprehend what was happening. And so I remember, like, as I was talking to Susan, and she kept going. But everything about the conversation just drowned out. And literally the gas station, I don't know if, I'm not a fainting person, but I remember just the gas station doing this, like, like that. And I went lightheaded. And uh, it, I just couldn't hear anything else that Susan was saying. She also eventually I tuned back in and she told me that Go knew one of the sweetest, sweetest girl, 16 years old, she became a Christian at the conference, that she died also in the accident. Eventually I found out that my brother was okay. He was on the passenger side of the van. Uh, five minutes before it rolled over, he woke up out of a slumber, put a seatbelt back on, and went back to sleep. And um, I grabbed Linda's hand, and we just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. 
And so uh, there were uh, three hours left in the trip back home. And I just remember laying my head down on her lap and just sobbing the whole time. And we drove straight to Chuck's house. And uh, man, this is, you know, Chuck's was one of my closest friends. And I remember just running to him. He was covered with Amanda's blood still. He had just got home from the hospital. And I bear hugged him. I don't think I've ever hugged anybody that close. He was holding his little girl, Julie, still. And um, he said, I still remember he said, she's gone. She's gone. How, how am I supposed to go on? And it was like this song that he was singing in my head. And um, it was a nightmare. It literally was a nightmare. What do, what do you do when nightmares come true? Like, what do you do in moments like that? And maybe that story is really intense for you and you can't relate because that's a very intense story. And so maybe your nightmare isn't something that intense. Maybe your nightmare is something a little bit more palatable. Maybe you lost a job. Um, maybe some of you guys are saying, man, Chuck's story, that's a walk in the park compared to my life. I don't know where you're at, but nightmares happen and they're real and they come true. But what do you do? In Psalms 126, the whole Bible, as a matter of fact, but Psalms 126 in particular, helps us to process both the emotional and the mental components of grief. It's a short psalm, but it helps us to think through and feel through our grief, which is really, really important in the way that God's created us. What we'll find out is that uh, in the psalm and in all throughout the psalms, that not only can we overcome grief, but grief can become undone, that we can undo grief. Psalms 126 gives us some insights as to how this happens. And this morning, I want you to brace yourself. We'll look at some very uh, hard-hitting kind of uh, ideas. As you think about, like, how does my life, how is my life panning out? And what things in my life have I not mourned yet completely? Maybe I thought I was over, but I've not yet fully dealt with it. I want us to prayerfully consider three things this morning. Number one is this, how to embrace the nightmare. Number two is how to learn to dream again. And number three is how the nightmare become, becomes untrue. How to, to deal with, how to embrace the nightmare, how to dream again, and how it becomes untrue. If you want to understand the richness of one, uh, Psalms 126, we have to know first how it was used. It's one of the 15 songs of ascent, songs that the Jews sang on their journey to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate various festivals. The songs were jam-packed with history and stories about the heritage of the Jews, many of them about victory, most of them about bitterness and sadness and regret. That's true about life for us. If there were a soundtrack made to your life, some of it would be like, you know, mine would be pop 80s. <laughs> uh, and then other parts of it would be, you know, why do the stars go on shiny? <laughs> right? The Psalms are the soundtrack to humanity. Uh, these 15 songs, the 15 songs of ascent in particular, are songs about the resolve to worship in the midst of, of weeping. The resolve to worship in the midst of weeping. Psalms 126, it seems to hint at a, the post-exilic period of the Jews. And what that means is that this is the time after the Jews were uh, deported to a, another country, Babylon. 
for two generations, they came back to rebuild their home place. So they lost land, they lost culture. So notice verse 1, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. They were so excited. We're back home. Now, in the dreaming, the worst nightmares aren't monsters. I don't know if you grew up dreaming about monsters. If you can think back to your worst nightmares, they're all about loss. Right? The psalm starts out hopeful. Like, we were like those who dreamed. But before they dreamed again, there were nightmares, captivity, deportation, ethnic cleansing. It was their nightmare. Their nightmare was loss. It was genocide. But it doesn't have to be genocide to be a nightmare. As a matter of fact, the loss of one loved person in our life can feel like a nightmare. Grief makes you ask when somebody dies, who am I now? Right? It's interesting that half the time grief is about not the other person who's passed away. Grief is about like um, uh, losing yourself in the midst of it. And so you feel like they've taken a piece with them. Remember Chuck's question, he says... How am I supposed to go on? How am I supposed to go on? Uh, C.S. Lewis, he writes in his book, The Four Loves, uh, about the sadness that's multiplied in family and in community. And this is what he says. He says, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald, this is J.R. Tolkien's, reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that there are things that I will never see in an alive person because only the person who had passed away brought those things out. And this is true in my life. There are things about Linda that I can no longer see because her father passed away. One of the favorite things that I loved about seeing Linda was that she was so, she had childlike faith around her dad. She just had this ability to trust him, like an ability that I don't know if I've yet earned in her life. And now that her dad's gone, I've not seen that childlike faith. This is true. But the sense of loss, it's not limited to just death. So think about this, loss of a dream. Loss of your, your job, your vocation. I was unemployed for seven months um, uh, about six years ago. And I felt like I was the worst dad and father in the world. I had dreams. I wanted to do something adventurous. I wanted to do something that was meaningful. And that all came collapsing. Some of us, it's loss of health. You have a chronic illness that you're battling. It's an issue that you just can't seem to get over. Some of us, it's loss of status. For others, it's because your father walked away. You, don't even, you can't even remember what dad looked like or smells like. There's no influence on your life from dad. Maybe you're like me and you made huge mistakes in your life, and you just keep making them. Like, I don't want to do this anymore, but I just keep doing it. And you're grieving all of these, all these mistakes that you've made. This is the bitter kind of weeping. This is a bitter kind of weeping. The weeping over a loss of a life is, 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 is different in that it, it, it's a sense of loss of yourself. The sense of loss over failure or disappointment is a bitterness. And it's a bitterness that a lot of people... Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Toronto feel this bitter weeping of failure, of loss, of disappointment, lost dreams. What is it? What's the human response to nightmares? 
what is the appropriate response when somebody gives you the bad news? They give you the pink slip. You lose the relationship. What do you do? Here's what humans do. Doesn't matter what your faith background is. Doesn't matter where you come from. Humans tend to weep and women's, uh, humans tend to worship. They tend to cry and they tend to cling to the thing that is their hope. I want to say this to us as a church, as a congregation, Trinity Life, there is a time when we just need to weep. You need to weep the loss. You need to weep, grieve over the sins of your life. You need to grieve over the condition of your marriage. You need to stop pretending that it was okay that your parents made that decision or your dad decided to do this. It's completely okay to allow whatever is in here to continue to come out. And after 20 years of dealing with it, if you find yourself that you need to weep again, then you'll weep again. It's okay. You don't have to have it all figured out. Those of you who have never known your parents' full love and embrace and approval, let the tears flow. Cry over the brokenness of our city. Cry over the brokenness of injustice. Weep over these things. This is God's reaction to a broken world. Like the psalmist in verse 2 and 3, remember in the weeping, God, cling to him. How you weep uncovers what your heart worships. How you weep uncovers what's important to you. Um, when you walk through the five stages of grief, and this is what grief counselors tells us, that you experience denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I remember all of those when I lost my job. Um, there's always something uncovered in your heart. As you go through each stage, you uncover something about yourself. It's a very like uh, self-discovering process to, uh, to lose your job or to lose a loved one. You know, as Lynn and I are grieving our recent miscarriage, one of the things that we find ourselves stuck in is it bargaining, oddly enough. Remember, a week ago, we said, God, we're so sorry that we weren't that excited about our fifth child, that it felt like it was more of a burden to us. But if you give us another one, we'll be more excited. We just kind of this bargaining prayer with God. And as we have spent more time in worship, that guilt is slowly melting away. It's slowly lifting. That's exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ says, that in Christ Jesus, God removes guilt. And we apply that. And we weep. And we worship. Let me ask you this morning, is your heart too hard to cry? Maybe God wants to soften it this morning. But if you're always crying in despair, God wants you to know his goodness and dream again. He wants you to dream again. That's our second point, is learning how to dream again. The trick with grief is this, you'd never know when you're done or not. It's actually, some Greek, grief counselors will say you never actually finish grieving, that it's always with you. Uh, and sometimes it feels that way, even if after you feel like, you know, I've been grieving the fact that my father walked out 20 years ago out of my life. Uh, sometimes there are things in our life that we actually put on pause because we have not fully mourned. 
Do you realize that? That there are things in your life that you've got on pause because for me, there are some things about fear of failure in the past that's causing me to be cautious about the present. I put things on pause because I haven't fully processed my loss in the past. This usually happens in denial or in depression during grieving. So for example, imagine somebody who failed to achieve their dream as an artist, as a businessman or businesswoman. Uh, There could be a great fear of starting over again because they didn't do it the first time. What makes you think I can do it the second time? All right. Uh, I don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. But that's where a lot of us are at. We're afraid to fully embrace the current season or the future because we're still holding on to the loss of the past. Some of us will look at Psalms 126, in particular verse 2 and 3, and say, that's not fair. Why are they laughing? And why are they filled with joy? Why can't that be me? Right? But is, is, that really, is that really the case? If you read verse 2 and 3, they're happy, they're excited. Yay, we're dreaming again. But is that really the case that's happening in this psalm? I don't think so. Let's look at the second half in verse 4. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All right? They're asking God to restore. We've lost a whole lot, God. Restore it back to us. All right? They're taking their tears, and instead of pitying themselves, they're investing their tears. They're taking the weeping and they're investing it. Their nightmares have become the seeds for the harvest. That's why they can dream again. They can look at their tears, they're lost, and they can say, ah, but that can be used. It's hard to say this to somebody who's in the midst of grieving. I would suggest to you that when somebody loses somebody, a job or a relationship, the first thing you don't say to them is, hey, don't worry, God can use this in your life, okay? Uh, Not that that's untrue, but some people aren't ready to hear that. But there will come a time when people, when, when when we're rooted in God's salvation, when you're rooted in God's salvation, your nightmares will become a seed for great harvest. Your greatest place of pain will become your greatest place of ministry. The place where you were wounded and God heals is where you actually do ministry out of. This is true. One of the greatest stories about grief in the Bible is found in John 11. Uh, It's about the death of Jesus' close friend, Lazarus. And Jesus was close to three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus became sick. A word was sent out to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Jesus, I don't know, out of his wisdom, decided to wait until Lazarus died before he came back to Bethany where they lived. Instead of rushing to Lazarus, Jesus waited for him to die. He waited for the nightmare to happen. Here's a side note. Sometimes we think God's timing is off. Because the nightmare happened. God's timing is different. When Jesus arrives, he has two different counseling responses to the sisters. All right? So here's some counseling instruction for you guys this morning. He has two different ways in which he responds. To Martha, what does he do first? He actually assures her with theological truth. That's what she needed. Martha was a thinker. 
She was a thinker. So in John eleven twenty five, this is what Jesus says. He says, Martha, I, I'm the resurrection in life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So he, he uses theological truth to help counsel Martha. Some of you thinkers, if you're like me, I, I rarely need somebody to come and give me a hug. Rarely. I, I enjoy it from time to time. Right? Phil, if you were to give me a hug, go, go easy, buddy. Go easy, buddy. But I don't mind. Right? Um, but I'd prefer to talk it out. Let's talk this out. I'd prefer to talk about loss rather than... Others are needed Mary's response. And this is what Jesus, this is how Jesus responded to Mary. John eleven thirty three. when Jesus saw her, Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In the shortest and most profound passage in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. With Mary, he just had a crying party. They just wept. I'm so sorry. Lazarus is gone. They just wept. Something we should know that in Christ Jesus, in these verses, what you learn about God is this, and this is, there's no other idea of this in any other religion is this, that in Christ Jesus we see that God grieves. That God grieves as well. God, God mourns your loss. God does not like the fact that there is injustice in the world. That the 1,100 that died this week because of the earthquake in Nepal, although it didn't shock God, he still grieves over their death. When your dad decided to leave and not come back, that broke God's heart just as much as it hurt your mom's heart. God grieves loss. And Jesus needed Mary to see that side of God. He sat down and he wept with everybody else. Some need truth first, others need tears first. In order to dream again, though, the truth is this, that you need both. You need both theological truth and you need tears. You need both of them. The psalmist put it this way. Uh, he said, you're a good God. Restore the fortunes. Theological truth. But then he also said, but this harvest field, oh, filled with tears, my tears. He needed comfort. Dreaming again it requires both the mind and the heart. If you want to dream again. It requires theological truth, working, anchoring you in the goodness of God. But it also requires a heart truth, a comfort, processing your emotions. You need this to dream again. If you don't have this, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to try to dream again in order to prove yourself. Because I failed in my business venture, I'm going to do it better this time. It's a terrible yoke to live under. Mourning a relationship, and if you don't have theological truth, if you don't have the emotional processing, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to uh, you're going to squash it. You're going to pretend that you're not hurt. You're going to pretend that you don't miss him or her. The psalmist is both, both. You need both. Theological truth anchors your fears of starting again, because when you learn the truth of God's word, you learn to live by hearing, trusting, and obeying. That's what theological truth challenges you to do. But you also need the comfort because when putting your hands to the plow to do things again, you need the comfort to keep your hands steady. That's worship, community. You need all of these things to dream again.
Can I give you one challenge? This is my um, Tony Robbins challenge for this morning. All right, he's not, I like Tony Robbins. (laughs) Some of you guys will dream again about the future and about what you want to have happen in your life again. But it's not going to happen the way that God wants it to happen until you can embrace worship and you can embrace community. Because it's only in worship where you receive theological truth. And it's only in community where you receive the comfort to process loss. You want to dream again? That's what you need. And thirdly is this. How does the nightmare become untrue? How does the, how does the nightmare become untrue? The psalmist says that the tears actually turn into joy. How does that happen? Um, This last point, it actually comes from Jesus' response to Martha uh, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It comes from that that response. See, grief is like sinking. How many of you guys have grieved uh, uh, somebody who was close to you? They died. Okay. About 50% of you guys. Wow. I'm surprised that only 50%. Okay. Uh, grieved a loss, you lost a job, you lost an opportunity, you lost, you know, okay, all right, so a little bit more. Um, If you can remember back to those moments, grief feels like you're sinking a little bit, right? It's kind of you're you're grasping for security and it's not there. Um, Worse than that, sometimes it can feel like a cement block that's tied to your feet and you're dropped in the ocean. Sounds like a mafia. Uh, You're thrown into the ocean and you're just sinking, in order to not hit rock bottom, what do you need? What do you need? You need hope. Hope floats you back to the top. You need something that is so powerful, so strong, not only does it float you, but it's got to be able to float the cement block that's tied you to the bottom of the ocean to float both of you back up to the top. And this is what Jesus is saying. Now, let me tell you the hope that floats. Let me tell you the hope that floats. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And this is how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians. For those of us who are Christians, this is how Paul would instruct us. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He means those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see what Paul is saying? The resurrection we have in Jesus is the hope that keeps us floating in the midst of grief. Something that Christians should stop saying to each other when somebody dies is this. Oh, don't be sad. You'll see them in heaven again. All right? Not that that's not true. All right? But that's incomplete. It doesn't do justice to the resurrection of Jesus and what the resurrection of Jesus really means. In Jesus, death is overcome. In resurrection, failures become successes. In resurrection, lost dreams, lost health, lost relationships, all fulfilled. In resurrection, bitterness turns to joy. In resurrection, injustice not only becomes justice, but there is justification for injustice. That's confusing, isn't it? Let me explain. It's not that God does evil. But God's reversal of evil is so great and is so overwhelming that when it happens one day in the future, we'll look back at every evil, every injustice, and we'll say, ah, that had to have happened. That's how powerful the resurrection is. That's the comfort that Christians give each other. 
And as a side benefit, you'll see each other in heaven again. C.S. Lewis writes this in his book about heaven and hell, uh, The Great Divorce. He says, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. In Christ, in the resurrection, the nightmare becomes untrue. Like Jesus said to Mary, he's also saying to you, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? Do you believe him? Do you believe that for your broken relationship? Do you believe that for the failed endeavors? Do you believe that he is the resurrection of not just physical life, but spiritual life, of not just... um, our personal lives, but all of injustice around the world. Do you believe that? That's the hope that floats you out of any kind of grief, any kind of mourning, any kind of loss. Our city is filled with bitter weeping. They are waiting for you to receive God's comfort so you can give it out. Pride keeps us away from God's comfort. Pride says, nope, I can't open it all up. It's too much. It hurts too much. Whenever we refuse God's comfort, we refuse healing. Whenever we refuse healing, somebody's missed an opportunity to receive from us. Does that make sense? I can only give to you what's in my wallet. Uh, God doesn't use credit cards. He's on a cash-only system. I can't give to you something I don't have. You, can't, you cannot minister to the people that live in your apartment complex, in your neighborhood, without something you don't have for yourself. God wants to give that to you. He's asking, do you believe me? Do you believe me? Is your heart too hard to cry? So maybe God is wanting to soften it this morning. But if you cry with total despair. God wants you to trust in his goodness and to hope again. We're going to take communion and I'm going to invite you to, in the midst of taking communion, I want to invite you to a prayer time on your own, but also I want you to take advantage of those who have been praying for you this morning already, our prayer partners. And earlier I said, I want to use this opportunity to pray for those who have, um, maybe had a loss of relationship with their parent, and maybe your parent has passed away. And I'm not saying come for prayer <clears throat> if you feel sad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if this is your situation, come for prayer. You don't have to feel nothing, all right? But I want to invite you to come for prayer. If there's been a, a parent that has passed away, or if, if you're not in a great relationship with either one of your parents, I feel this morning that we want to minister specifically to you, all right? So I want to ask that you have courage to come up and receive that kind of prayer. Um, The reason why this is important is because the way that you think about, and I'm not saying that if you don't have a great relationship with your parents, that you're not healthy. I'm not saying that. But I will say this, that those of us who struggle with relationships with our parents, either dead or alive still, that there is a sense in which everything we do is on pause 
that it's hard to keep moving forward because when you try to move forward, you feel like you're trying to always prove something. And maybe you haven't thought about it in that way, but maybe much of your life is, feels like you're being held back because you haven't fully, fully, fully mourned the loss or the brokenness. When I ask this morning that God would give us that opportunity to receive healing from him, and in that he will show you when you receive the Father's love, how do I dish that out to people around me? If you don't understand the Father's love, it will be hard for you to explain it to others. And God, I want to pray for this morning. I want to pray for this time that you would rush over us with your healing comfort. Those of us who need prayer because we've lost a job or a career or we're bitter because of a situation and we need to just come to your feet and either like Martha and we need to know your truth or like Mary, we just need to know that God, you care, that you grieve with us. God, for those of us who have benefited from having relationships from a parent, from family, and we feel a sense of health because of that. God, I pray we not take that for granted to see that, God, you have a pattern in life, and that is this generation to the next generation, to the next generation, and to the next generation. And for many of us, Lord, there's been a pause because that baton was dropped from the generation above us. We didn't even know that we were in a race. We were never told what life was about. We've spent the last 20 years trying to figure it out on our own when simply it could have just came in a relationship with the Father. So God, I pray that you would impart the healing that only you can give. Only you can give that. Only you are the good father. God, as we receive uh, communion this morning, we're reminded that Jesus, your body was broken for us, that your blood was poured out. It's a reminder that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. But when we take communion this morning, God, remind us that our mission field, Toronto, is contingent on our obedience. And when we partake of communion, we're saying thank you for salvation. We will extend it to others. Let us have missional grief this morning. Lead us in this time of worship. God, let there be worship. Let there be weeping. Let there be only glory and healing that comes from you.